You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Uh, good morning, and thank you all for joining us this morning for this very important and very timely conversation, which is entitled Exposing Atrocities in Ukraine, the relationship between reporting and accountability. My name is George Moose, and I have the honor of serving as the chair of the board of directors of the United States Institute of Peace. Uh, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, USIP was established by the US Congress in 1984 as a nonpartisan public institution dedicated to preventing, mitigating, and helping resolve violent conflicts abroad. To lead our discussion today, we are very pleased to have with us Chuck Todd, political director of NBC News, and Bill Taylor, vice president and director of the Europe and Russia Center here at the US Institute of Peace. Their topic is a difficult and sobering one, how to address and expose mass atrocities committed in the midst of armed conflict, and how to understand the relationship between journalistic reporting and accountability. Throughout its history, USIP has been deeply engaged in the examination of how to prevent and respond to mass atrocities. Now, the Institute served as co-chair of the 2009 Genocide Prevention Task Force, which established the broad framework currently used by the US government for its atrocity prevention and response policy. Today's discussion will focus on efforts to document and respond to atrocities committed in the context of Russia's unprovoked and unjustified invasion of Ukraine. The discussion will consider the often heroic work of journalists to expose these crimes. It will also examine ongoing efforts to hold perpetrators accountable, as well as the challenges facing policymakers in ensuring that justice is delivered to victims. Today's event also marks the launch of an equally timely exhibit entitled, Imagine, Reflections on Peacebuilding. This multimedia exhibit, which opens officially tomorrow, is the product of a partnership between the Institute and the Seven Foundation. The exhibit explores the themes and challenges of peacebuilding through an immersive look at societies that suffered and survived conflict. Conceived and designed by the Seven Foundation, the Imagine exhibit uses historical photos, texts, and video to bring fa visitors face to face with the realities of violent conflict. It asks the question, why is it so difficult to make a good peace when it is so easy to imagine? For those who are here in person, we hope that you will take time after the, today's discussion to visit the exhibit, which is located right next door in the Institute's Great Hall. Our program today will begin with a moderated conversation with Chuck Todd, Bill Taylor. Mr. Todd is political director for NBC News and the moderator of Meet the Press. He leads the network's premier political coverage across NBC's many platforms 
offering the American public insider analysis and critical insights into happenings inside the Beltway. He also is a primary anchor for the network's primetime election coverage and is known for holding both politicians and networks accountable. He earned, uh, has earned the reputation as one of Washington's respected, most respected political journalists responsible for establishing Meet the Press as the number one Sunday public affairs program. Ambassador William Taylor is one of USIP's vice presidents and director of its Russia and Europe Center. In 2019, he took a, a leave of absence from the Institute to accept an appointment as chargé d'affaires at the US Embassy in Kyiv, having previously served as the US ambassador to Ukraine from 2006 to 2009. From 1992 to 2002, he was coordinator for US assistance to the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. He later served as the State Department's Afghanistan coordinator and as director of the Iraq Reconstruction Management Office in Baghdad. Following discussion, we will allow time for, for questions from our audience, both here and online. For those of us, uh, I'm sorry, for those of you following us online, please use the question box on the event webpage. And now, Chuck, Bill, thank you again for joining us today. And with your permission, uh, Chuck, I'll turn the floor over to you. Thank you very much. Uh, really appreciate it. Well, let's dive uh, right in as much as I'd love to talk about this amazing building. Uh, it's my first time actually in the first building. First time in the building. You drive by this every day, and you look at like this beautiful building, and you're like, the federal government actually helped fund this beautiful building and not that horrible architecture right across the street? Right? Uh, but uh, let's get started. We got a lot of news this morning, Bill, uh, from the president himself in the op-ed. And I want to sort of take it piece by piece. First, I want to talk about the specific, the, the decision. There apparently was a debate about whether to send this new advanced rocket system to uh, Ukraine. And apparently, the Russians had let it be known that if somehow if we did this, this was an escalatory move. President Biden decided to try to split hairs here and said, we're going to give them this system. They've pledged not to use it to fire into Russia. My question is, so what? Like, the Russians are offended that the Ukrainians might actually launch a rocket into the other side? What are they doing? Um, so there's that aspect of it. But how important is this? Chuck, first of all, it's great to have you in this building. Yes. Um, I've been in your building a couple times, and, uh, and it's great to have, have you here. Um, and George, thank you very much for, for uh, getting us started here. It's great to, to uh, have this opportunity. Um, I think this is a big deal. Um, the war in Ukraine, um, as George indicated, unprovoked, unjustified by the Russians invading their neighbor uh, for no reason that they can even identify, um, has gone on now into its fourth month. Um, and it shifted location and it shifted tactics um, such that these longer range weapons are more important now than they were in the beginning. In the beginning, the Russians came down, as we know, from the north. They thought they would be able to take Kiev and replace President Zelensky and take over the country by putting a puppet government in that they could control. Um, that, of course, failed spectacularly. Um, but the fighting around Kiev, to the north of Kiev, in the forests, 
um, uh, short range. Uh, the weapons um, that, that NATO provided, that the United States provided, suited to that kind of terrain. It's now shifted. Second phase is, or current phase, uh, is wide open territory. Those of us who have seen that part of Ukraine, indeed that part of the world, can picture Kansas. Um, it. it's, you can't sneak up um, like you could when you were in the forest. Long range weapons are important. This, the so-called multiple launch rocket systems, MLRS, have been on the Ukrainians' mind for months now. They knew what was coming. They knew what the change in terrain and tactics were going to mean for them. And sure enough, um, they, the Ukrainians are getting bombarded uh, by the long They're range. They're losing the war right now? Not losing the war because they have, they have won the first phase Fair around Kyiv. They've even pushed the Russians back out of the second largest city, Kharkiv, um, in, the, in the northeast. Um, the Russians have made progress, as we know, in the south. Um, they've been stopped short of, the, of a major port, Odessa. Um, Ukraine still owns that port. If the Russian fleet were able, would allow ships to go back and forth in and out of that port, that we wouldn't have this food crisis that we have around the world, but different story. But the Russians have been stopped there, so the, the Ukrainians are not losing this war. The battle now is exactly what you say, it's kind of in this center. It's called around this area, Donbass, that the Russians invaded in 2014. And they're still trying to take a little bit more of Donbass, and, it, and they're making some progress because of these long range fires. It's not just artillery, it's also Ballistic missiles, it's cruise missiles, um, it's bomb, it's, it's aircraft, it's airstrikes, um, uh, which they weren't using very, the Russians weren't using very well in the beginning, uh, but they are now, um, and they're taking some territory, there's no doubt about it. So the Ukrainians are gradually pulling back, um, um, and they're resisting in the, in the south, they've won the battle in the north, so it's, it's kind of edging toward an uncomfortable stalemate, back and forth. Does Ukraine have what they need to win this, or they only have enough to be in a stalemate? They have enough to be in a stalemate. They, we will know the answer to that question if they win. When they win, they're convinced that they will win. Um, it's grim. It's grim for them right now. I have some good friends who are in the Ukrainian military. I hear from regularly. I hear, heard from him yesterday from the front lines. And he describes the bombardment in horrific terms that he's observed himself. He's back and forth to the front line and moving, moving equipment. Um, um, uh, and it's, it's grim. But part of the equipment that he's moving is, gets to your question that it's coming from the United States. It's coming from NATO. Mm -hmm. um, and these long range artillery pieces, uh, long range for artillery, so we're talking- 50 miles, right? Less, okay. uh, less. Um, but the longer range, the MLRS gets back to your question about President Biden's statement, decision to provide these MLRS, at least the medium range versions of those, which do go 50 miles, okay. don't go 300 miles, or don't go 180 miles, 300 kilometers, because that then gets to your point about shooting into Russia. Mm -hmm. um, and the Ukrainians have said that that's not what they're after, that's not what they're interested in. What they are interested in is stopping the bombardment of their frontline troops. And you think this weapon system can stop that? It can start to stop it. Um, it can certainly give them the ability to stop it in certain places. Um, the Russians just have a lot of stuff 
They've got a lot of artillery and they got a lot of ammunition. Mm-hmm. Ukrainians don't have a lot of artillery, don't have as much artillery and are short of ammunition. So it's, it's grim. We won't know the answer. To, or do, you asked the right question. Do they have enough? Um, we won't know until they, until they win, at which time we'll say yes. I probably used this quote with you before, but a, uh, a woman named Amy Acton was the Ohio public health director during the start of COVID. And she had this quote that I've been dining out on forever, and I feel like it applies to this war. She says, when in a pandemic, you never look back and regret what you did. You look back and regret what you didn't do. When it comes to what we're watching now, you know, Ukraine had Russia on its heels, and essentially Russia was allowed to regroup. Are we in the West, NATO, America, however you want to define the EU, are we going to look back and regret what we didn't do? I think we may well look back and regret what we didn't do at the beginning of the war. Our intelligence services, and not just the United States, but allied intelligence services, were, were right about the Russian intentions when they had 120, 150, 170,000 Russians surround on three borders of Ukraine. They, our intelligence services were right, and they were also right to say they're going to invade. There were a lot of people who said, yeah, they got all those forces there, we can see that, but they wouldn't be so crazy. They wouldn't make, such a, they wouldn't make a blunder. Putin wouldn't be that dumb to invade. Well. He invaded, and, and our intelligence services predicted that. A lot of people didn't. And our intelligence services did not predict how well the Ukrainians would do. Was European intelligence, wanted, were they looking to be, were they, were they wrong because of confirmation bias? They, you know, because they saw what happened last time and they wanted to believe? And they didn't believe what they were seeing, or this was truly a, a, just a, you know, the American intelligence saw one thing, and European, intel, you know, Germans and Germany and France saw another. Germany, France, good distinction, because the Brits agreed Brits are, with the Americans, right. um, as they almost always do, as they regularly are, <laughs> um, uh, and they, the Brits and the Americans said they're going to invade, and the Germans and French. And Ukrainians to a large degree. I was mm-hmm. in Kiev. I was in President Zelensky's office three weeks before the invasion, and we had this conversation exactly um, about. Would so that wasn't just rhetoric. I always thought Zelensky said that publicly because he he wanted to project. There was that too. Yeah. Okay. He didn't want panic. Right. He didn't want panic. He knew exactly what we all knew on the number of right. Russian troops around, but uh, his sense was that it would be such a mistake um, for Putin to actually do that. His sense was that Putin was was trying to. Bl- bluff or, or intimidate Zelensky or President Biden. By the way, Zelensky's been proven right, right? With, with the sort of, frankly, half-measured invasion that they did, it seemed like he was always hoping quick strike, quick surrender. Right? And um, the, he knew his military. Yeah. And we, in, the, in his office three weeks before the invasion, we were talking about his military. He was talking about expanding his military, increasing the pay for the soldiers on the front line. He had this in mind, for, for sure. Um, it, but the, all the intelligence services uh, missed how strong the Ukrainian military had become and how fiercely they'd be willing to fight and how supportive the Ukrainian people would be. Why did so we miss it? I think we underestimated. Uh, I think President Putin underestimated um, uh, the, the, the strength of the Ukrainian military. One reason, one answer to your question is, the Ukrainian military, the last time, in 2014, 
when the Russians first invaded, when they took uh, Crimea and, and then continued into Donbas, Ukrainian military was in terrible shape. Under the previous president, the one with the kind of right. Russian-oriented Yanukovych, who fled to Russia, is still in Russia now, um, um, he allowed the Ukrainian military to, to hollow out. And so the Ukrainian military in 2014, when, they, when the Russians first invaded, right. not so good. Uh, they, the Russians missed, and maybe the, the West missed, uh, the kind of, of strength, of morale, of, uh, of grit um, that the Ukrainians showed. In any case, going back to the question, is, will we regret something? I think we, since we didn't think the Ukrainians would, would be able to resist this enormous military that yeah. was arrayed on the, we didn't think they would resist. It took us a while before we realized, you know, these guys actually might win. We, we, could, we should be supporting them. And then the stingers and the, the, the javelins and the other ammunition came, the night vision, all of that stuff that started, started to come in. And it had a real effect. It really affected, it helped the Ukrainians, but it might have been late. It was late, and the question was, was it too late? And that's the question with this weapon system. Is it going to be help continue a stalemate or actually give Ukraine an opportunity to make some progress? Part of the answer to that is going to be the state of the Russian military on the ground. Mm -hmm. They've been, the, the Russian soldiers have been in the field, as they say, since what, last December, through the winter. Right. Uh, they were arrayed, as we all saw pictures of them uh, uh, on the border, just waiting then. And finally, on, on February 24th, they invaded. They've been in, in battle since then and gotten whipped, frankly, in the north and in the northeast, made some progress, but with tough progress. We remember around Mariupol and how those right. Ukrainians held out against and took, took casualties, but inflicted casualties. on. So the answer to your question is, can they win? A lot depends um, on military provision, the, the weapons that we're talking, we're talking about, MLRS, these long-range rockets, medium-range rockets, not the super long, uh, medium-range rockets, and the state, the morale, the capabilities, the number of soldiers that the Russians can put in the field. Right. Let me uh, borrow a phrase from the Taliban. Between the Russians and in, in, in Ukraine, who's got the time and who's got the watches? It's <coughs> that a great line. Um, it is. And, I, I wish I could have come up with it. It's I such a good line. I heard it early, used it a couple times early, had to attribute it to other people. No, it's I know. A, it's, 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 a, it's such a, a line. It's a great line. Taliban probably never did say it. But they probably not. It, it, it right. doesn't matter. It doesn't no, matter. It's, it's a great right. line. It's, it is a great line. Um, and they were right. Mm -hmm. um, so right now, um, uh, the Ukrainians need the time for these weapons, not just the MLRS, but others to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, so it is a race. Um, the Russians, however, they need some time as well to regroup and, and, and reform these, these units that are being beaten up. The interesting thing is the Russians seem to be pushing real hard. So they're acting like... They seem to be in a hurry. They seem to be in a right? hurry. Yeah. And it's probably, we don't know, but I certainly don't know, it's probably because President Putin wants to take over quickly before the Ukrainians can build up the strength that they need to, to push them back out. Mm -hmm. um, so the Ukrainians need the time. The Russians are eager to, to move forward right now, um, and they're watching the clock. NATO, specifically in NATO, and I want to get to the other part of President Biden's op-ed this morning, which got very specific at walking back two of the most iconic lines 
through this war from American officials. First, when Secretary Austin, when, when, he ba when he said, which seemed, Secretary Austin does not strike me as somebody who goes off the cuff. And he said definitively that Russia needed to pay a price for this. So he was, you know, another, another level of accountability. President Biden, during that speech that he gave um, in Poland, when it was clearly something in his head and he went ahead and said it, we, we've all not used our filters before and that was probably a moment when he said, my God, this man can't stay in power, which is an obvious observation. You know, I always thought, you know, you, but I get the, the diplomatic trickery there. The president walked both of those comments back. Why? How important was it that he had to do that? I think really important. Um, he led off, or maybe it was the headline uh, that said, President Biden outlines the goals because his administration, the United States more broadly, um, had not been clear about our goals. You've cited Secretary Austin, who said we want to weaken, our, our goal is to weaken the Russians. That's not the goal. And President Biden was clear in this op-ed that the goal is a free... It's a nice outcome. Right. It's, it's, it, would be, it would be a nice outcome, but that's not why we're there. Mm -hmm. And it's not the goal. It's not the objective. The objective is a free, independent, sovereign, prosperous Ukraine. Um, that's the goal. And if it weakens Russia, so be it. If it weakens Russia, that's just fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we're not eager to have that. No, that's exactly right. That's, that would be just fine. That's a, good, that's a good side benefit in some sense. But the real goal um, is an independent, sovereign prosperous, democratic Ukraine. And President Biden was clear about that. And that, he needed to state that. It's clear in writing. It's okay. It's all right. <laughs> uh, it's, it's out there, and he'll probably say it again. Well, this brings me to the other part of what we're supposed to be talking about here, yep. which is the accountability aspect of this war. And let me start when it comes to war accountability. Has a loser in a war ever successfully held the winner accountable? For the, a war crime? Exactly the right question. That's exactly the right question. If we're going to hold President Putin to account mm -hmm. and his whole chain of command, his, his minister of defense, uh, his general officers, uh, commanders, all the way down to the soldiers uh, who committed these war crimes, uh, these atrocities, if we're going to hold that whole chain of command to account, they have to lose. Because the answer to your question is no. Um, I can't, I certainly can't think, maybe somebody um, here, Lauren may be able to answer this question. Right. I don't, I can't think of, of a, of a, of a, of a uh, winning side that's held itself or, or. Who's, I mean, the beauty of our justice system is that we will hold a prosecutor account if they, um, if they uh, basically go about in, in a prosecution illegally. Right, whatever it is, they trump up evidence or they leave something out. We will hold, you know, our system. I mean, this is sort of what makes our system, we hope, um, such a uh, successful system and our belief in the rule of law. That is not the way war crimes trials work, right? Correct. Um, uh, there are different mechanisms that are in place, international mechanisms. The uh, Treaty of Rome sets up uh, the International Criminal Court, which turns out the United States and Russia are not members of. The Ukrainians have kind of signed on to it without actually uh, uh, signing the, the treaty. Um, but, but there's that, uh, there's that mechanism. There are special tribunals that can be set up to do this. 
what we're seeing right now um, is within Ukraine, the, their justice system, which is, you know, there, um, has some trouble, you know, has a, as all justice systems do, uh, but they've been working on their justice system rightly for a long time. But they're holding Russian soldiers into account that were captured, uh, holding to account. If they're uh, all guilty, does that, is that actually a problem when it comes to fairness? Or did somebody think is righteous, right? But you have to do your best to try to, um, you know, to try to not, 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 not report confirmation bias, essentially. And when I think about all of the different evidence that we're all gathering to show the crimes that have taken place by these Russian shoulders, the Ukrainian government is very helpful in making sure we, we notice or see some of these things. It's tough to vet. I'm not going to lie to you. It's tough to vet these things. You want to believe that they're being truthful to you, but we also know it's in their interest to make sure the world sees those guys as Porters in Ukraine, both the Ukrainians and the international core, press corps, um, are not under control of any government. True. And they are demonstrating, documenting um, this, these horrors um, that, that you can't hide, um, that you can't hide. So yeah, I, I take your point about trying to be objective, um, right. but this war um, is is clarifying. I mean, this, uh, I've said on this stage that, uh, that uh, I fought in a morally ambiguous war. Uh, this war that we're talking about here right. is not morally ambiguous. This is, this is clear. Well, that gets to my frustration as an American citizen. This, to me, doesn't look morally ambiguous. And it really looks like we are still waiting and still sitting on the sidelines. We're sitting on sidelines in that we don't have soldiers on the ground. I'm not saying we should even have soldiers on the ground. We but don't we even have, have airmen yeah. in the air. Um, and we talked earlier about the bombardment, uh, the air strikes as well as the missiles. Russia strikes. does not want to fight with NATO. They don't want to fight There's with There's a reason NATO. they pick the countries to invade that they pick. They, have, they haven't picked one that has a NATO umbrella. They have not. They have not. Uh, and um, the gem, the prize, is Ukraine for mm -hmm. Putin. Um, to reassemble the Russian Empire, to reassemble the Soviet Union. That's, that's the prize. And you're right. Not being a member of NATO, it, he could do that. Uh, he could do that. I go back to 2008. I was in Kiev in 2008 mm -hmm. um, when President Bush um, and Steve Hadley and Condi Rice came through Kiev and on, en route to a NATO summit where the question of NATO membership for Ukraine mm -hmm. and Georgia was on the table, and they made the, the Germans and French said no um, at that time. Had they gone differently, mm -hmm. had had Ukraine been accepted um, as a member or a prospective member, of that, we wouldn't be here today. I am convinced we, the Russians would not have invaded for the reasons that you just said. I mean, it is amazing um, when you look back in that moment. So in 2008, NATO passes on Georgia and Ukraine, and what is it? Two months later? Three, yeah. That, that, George, that George is invaded? George is invaded in August of 2008. I mean, is that yep. not a cause and effect? I think it's a clear cause and effect. And not, what, five years after that, um, they went into Crimea. Yeah. So if, and I want to ask about the Germans and the French here, because that was something else that happened this weekend that's sort of gotten underreported, is that they had another call with Putin, and they did it together. Um, and Macron has been very vocal about essentially pushing Zelensky to get to a peace, get to a peace. 
this is clearly financially driven by both France and Germany, is it not? Maybe. Um, it, you know, undoubtedly, uh, there are humanitarian concerns. Mm -hmm. People are dying. Uh, civilians are dying as well as soldiers are dying. So there, that's perfectly legitimate concern. However, um, it's not just uh, the leaders of France and Germany. You've got, you know, distinguished U.S. diplomats. You know, Henry Kissinger has been saying the same thing, that, the, that Ukrainians, Zelensky, should give up part of his territory, give, give up part of his land Did in Kissinger, order to start the... One of my other favorite Washingtonisms, right, is uh, there was a writer back in the 90s, uh, Michael Kinsley, a, a, a Washington gaffe is accidentally speaking the truth. Um, did Kissinger commit a Washington gaffe? No, he's believed that. Okay. Um, he, he's been there for a long time. But Kissing so have a lot of diplomats. A lot, of, well, some, yeah, that's right. Um, I won't speak ill of the I understand. dead, but, but there, were, there have been others who have made the same point. That is, you know, these small countries don't matter as much as these big countries yeah, like no, Russia. You treat them like pawns. You treat them like pawns, and you respect the Russians, and you have to deal with Putin's ego and face and exit ramps and all that stuff. Um, whereas uh, what President Biden said yesterday, or wrote yesterday, as mm -hmm. you point out, is that he will never lean on, he will never pressure President Zelensky to negotiate or to give up land, give up territory, give up mm -hmm. sovereign Ukraine um, to the Russians. He won't do that. Um, he, President Biden undoubtedly will support President Zelensky if he decides to negotiate. In fact, is that's part of the reason for providing these weapons, sure. is to help him be in a stronger position to negotiate. But he's not going to lean on him, unlike what, what Henry Kissinger said and what Macron said and what Schultz have said. You know, whose definition of sovereign Ukraine is there? Because Russia obviously has already annexed some pieces. I see that, I hear that phrase thrown out it's almost purposeful, not defined. Purposely not defined. President Correct? Zelensky has been clear. Okay. He's been clear um, that on, in the first principle, he will not give up claim to any sovereign Ukrainian territory, including Donbass and, and Crimea, Crimea right. including both of those. He will not give up claim. However, he's also said uh, that he will not use military force to enforce that claim on Crimea. He hasn't made that same statement about Donbass. And he has said uh, that he is willing to sit down and negotiate after the Russians pull back from the territory that they've gained uh, since February 24th, 2022, since, okay. since this current version of the wars began. The Russians have claimed territory, have occupied territory. They don't control it, but they've occupied it. Um, and President Zelensky has said if he'll sit and negotiate, maybe a ceasefire, maybe other things, once the Russians are pushed back or withdraw back into Donbass and Crimea. So that gives you a sense of what he thinks of the immediate sovereign nation, the sovereign territory, even though he won't give up ultimate claim for the whole. Do you expect uh, accountability for war crimes to be negotiated? No. Um, you don't think that ends up on the table between Ukraine and Russia? I don't think they... it can be. I don't think it can be. I mean, there are no statute of limitations. Right. The uh, Russians may call for it, right? They, oh, I'm sure they will. Uh, I assume they will. Uh, who knows what they will do? Uh, I, don't think, I don't think the Ukrainians will negotiate on that, and I don't think the international community will negotiate on that. Um, it's an unanswerable question I'm about to ask you, but 
the United Nations, it does feel as if, because Russia is a permanent member, that at the end of the day they're at, they're out of reach from the ICC, that they're really kind of untouchable, and that all and that this is a flaw in the UN Charter. There's no doubt there's a flaw in the UN Charter. We have an expert here, um, <laughs> Ambassador Moose, uh, who introduced. I'll be honest. This. I think I've, I know a lot of people. Our friend Ambassador Boldness believed the UN has is, is, is been unworthy for decades. I have to tell you, watching them throughout this, the fecklessness of the United Nations has come through in spades the, during this war. Uh, well, um, let's be clear. Um, the, that certainly applies to the UN Security Council. Yes. I, I get it on humanitarian. There are other I, they do a few things food well. Food yes. and humanitarian, you know, maybe even... Maybe, maybe even. But war and peace, not so much. Security Council, not so much. Because yeah. of these, of these uh, vetoes, right. which we use too, let's be clear. Um, we do. Uh, but the Russians uh, have, have frozen, have stalled, have stymied the Security Council. And President Zelensky, we remember when he addressed the Security Council, he was harsh. He said, this organization, UN, was designed, was founded, was designed to stop or prevent wars. You failed, he said. If you can't do it, then He's war. right. He's what Zelensky right. said, it was so clever. It was so clear. There was so much clarity he brought to his criticism of the United Nations. He oh, basically said, you, you got to take away. I don't even know if there, I'm sure there is a mechanism to get rid of a permanent member, I but I don't know. I don't think know. there is. is I there, don't it, think it, there it, is. George will know better than and, I, but. You know, we, you know, or it is amazing that certain continents don't even have a permanent member, right? Like there's just. The whole thing seems to be. Uh, this is the topic of a lot of, of thought already, yeah. and more needs to happen going forward. And George is urging us to do this, and we will do this. We will absolutely do this. We are in the second half hour of our conversation, so I, I will get ready for questions. But, but I have one more question before we open up, and that is, um, how does Ukraine not become Syria? So Ukraine is a stronger nation um, and Ukraine has been strengthened um, over the last eight years, but certainly over the last three months even. Mm -hmm. um, it is so unified at this point. Ukraine is so unified. Um, uh, and its military is fighting so fiercely with the support of the Ukrainian people. Um, and again, uh, with Zelensky, being a true representative of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian people strongly supporting him, that you don't see that in, in Syria. Um, you've got a united nation, um, that, that you have a united Ukraine um, determined to be independent, sovereign, free, prosperous, uh, democratic. They're, they, that's, they've been that way, trying to get that way, trying to be better democratic for the last 30 years. They do not want to go back under the thumb control of an oppressive Russia. Um, and so they're fighting for their freedom in ways that very few other nations, well, the only, including Let Syria. me ask you, and the, the follow-up on that is, um, the West got tired of tr trying to get rid of Assad and gave up, including the United States. But you could argue all the, the West, and it was the Europeans in some ways, pushing to de-escalate. How do we not have the same thing happen here in six months? It's the right question. Uh, it's the right question. And there will be tensions. There already are tensions. Yeah, uh, we, I mean, see we it. just talked about with Macron and Schultz. We said Macron and Schultz. We see it in the, uh, the economic strains. 
Um, the, Ukraine, the, the, the European food crisis is real. Food crisis is real. Inflation yeah. is real. Yeah. Uh, gas, natural gas prices are high, really. Uh, oil prices as well, contributing to inflation. So all of that is going to be a strain. All that's going to put pressure on the international community um, to, you know, ease off a little bit. If we ask for more Ukraine aid, they're going to be double the amount of Republicans against it as there were the last time. I do think people need to be prepared for that. I think we need to be prepared for that. So far, I'll just say so far, um, the support has been strong. Mm -hmm. Even in the Republican Party in the Senate, in the Senate. Uh, in the Senate. Yeah, key. Um, uh, key. Um, uh, and the leader of the Republican Party in the Senate has been, you know, he was just there. Unabashed. Unabashed. Yeah. And good for him. Uh, so, so I think that is, it's going to be tough. There's no doubt it's going to be tough. This is important to us as a nation. Mm -hmm. It's important to us as a leader of the international community. Um, and it's important to the Ukrainians. So I think we'll have to stick. One thing I like to remind people is the, uh, the, uh, in 1942, the midterm elections went against the party in power because people were more worried about what was going on here. Um, I'll open up to questions both in the room, and I know we have some online questions, uh, Lauren, but oh, go ahead. And I'll repeat. Do we have a mic? There Hang is on. a mic. There's oh, a mic good. coming got... running towards you right, right this moment here. Here he comes. Now that the Ellen Show is canceled, we've got some helpers from the <laughs> Ellen Show. Thank you. Um, first, uh, I wanted to thank both of you for your service, uh, Mr. Taylor, and that morally ambiguous uh, conflict uh, in the State Department and now at the Institute of Peace. And Mr. Todd, I've always liked your penetrating uh, analysis uh, through the years. Uh, just two quick clarifications. What was the quote attributed to the Taliban? Uh, what is it? Uh, you, uh, we've got the time, but you have the watches, I think is what it was. So. Uh, and uh, Mr. Taylor, what, what, is, what was Zelensky's uh, position on uh, the Crimea? Uh, right. So uh, earlier on, like about two months ago, uh, there were negotiations. At least the Ukrainians were serious about these negotiations with the Russians, first on the border of Belarus and then in Istanbul or in Turkey, um, uh, outside of Istanbul. Um, and in those negotiations, um, there were some serious proposals put down by the Ukrainians. One of those proposals put down by the Ukrainians um, uh, was a commitment to agree to disagree about Crimea for 15 years and a commitment not to try to reclaim Crimea by force. So, um, so that, that was the Ukrainian, that, that's what the Ukrainians were willing to commit at that time. These negotiations those negotiations um, were before Bucha, were before atrocities, uh, were before Irpin, before Mariupol. Um, with those war crimes, um, the enthusiasm, the willingness to negotiate has gone way down. Um, but, but at the time, President Zelensky said that he, he would forswear militarily trying to take back Crimea. Great, thank you. I too would like to thank both of you for what's been a great discussion. I'd also like to compliment whoever uh, titled this event as exposing atrocities, because I'm not sure we're going to be able to do more than expose atrocities. And this leads to my question to the ambassador. Uh, if, if we don't go into Russia, how do we hold Putin 
and his chain of command, as you described it earlier, accountable for what they've done. Uh, they're going to, it seems to me that they're going to sit in a certain uh, uh, security and they're not, all they have to do is not travel abroad and they're off the hook. Uh, the analogy is Eichmann and the Israelis had to go get them before they could hold them accountable. It's a fair question. It's a very fair question. And we do know who titled this and she's sitting right here. Congratulations, uh, Lauren. Nice, nice work. Um, uh, and. And um, you're right, there is no intention, and again, President Biden in his, in his statement yesterday made it very clear that that's not our goal. Uh, our goal is not regime change. Our goal is not to, to go into Russia. Our goal is not to uh, have the, uh, enable the Ukrainians to even fire into Russia. So we're not gonna go hold, we're not gonna go arrest uh, President Putin or that chain of command that, that you talked about, that we talked about. Um, but you also said the right thing. You, you made the right point. That is, no statute of limitations. So as long as he is in power, um, and if he is able, if if the international community is able to label him and and try him as a war criminal, he can't travel. Now, uh, Lauren will remind me that there have been some leaders uh, who were condemned, um, uh, who did travel, and may not have been arrested by mistake. You know, they should have been arrested when they went into where it was, South Africa or wherever it was. Um, uh, but being a pariah, being a, a convicted war criminal, not being able to travel, um, uh, that's, a, that's a penalty. Do you expect a trial in absentia? Why not? Mm -hmm. Why not? Um, absentia, have, have we done this? do it, but then it becomes more of a political consideration. You want the defendant there to actually try to vindicate themselves. You do. You do. Yeah. Thank you. Good question. Uh, all right, let's go online. So we've gotten some good online questions, and I'm going to give you two grouped together, both related to the ICC. What steps should Congress take to support accountability for war crimes in Ukraine? Uh, should this include amending some of the restrictions that have been put in place on support to the International Criminal Court? Relatedly, to what extent does the fact that the U.S. is not a signatory to the ICC complicate U.S. efforts to assist in the investigation and prosecution of war crimes, and will the U.S. put aside its differences and work with the ICC? Yeah, the second question to me seems to be the more relevant one because the first question is not relevant if we're not a party to the ICC. Correct? We're not a part of the ICC, but I think it is true. Um, um, that while there are constraints on us by by law, I mean there's some there's some U.S. law that says you can't do some things with the ICC, and we know why they they were put in place. But there are some there are some things that we can do to support the ICC. I think this is true, and again, smarter people than I, or one of whom is sitting right here, um, have have suggested that the United States. Um, either with the government or more likely through uh, legal capabilities that we have, can support ICC investigations. Um, um, that's right, Lauren, is that right? Yeah. Um, so there are things that we can do, even under this restrictive law that, that we are operating on that says we can't actually participate mm -hmm. um, and we don't accept uh, jurisdiction over them. So there are some things that we can do, but the questioner also asks, are there some changes to the law some people are suggesting some changes to the law. For example, um, there is a, an amendment. I don't think it's, I don't know if it's moved yet, but there's an amendment that says 
if, there, if there's a war criminal who comes to the United States, um, who is convicted uh, of, of, of war crimes in another country, we can arrest him. Arrest him. Um, which we, I think so we, we don't can. make a distinction on being a, named a war criminal by the ICC versus named a war criminal by Ukrainians judiciary versus versus another country. Or? I think that the law will be. They'll have. We'll have to see what the law emerges, mm -hmm. um, and it's being worked on right now. But there, there seems to be bipartisan support for saying if there's a war criminal, we ought to be able to arrest him if he lands in Dallas. Gotcha. We had a question out here. Let's get the mic. Hi, good morning. Thank you both so much for your remarks and thank you for the lovely kickoff to the event, George. Um, in this conversation and in high-level conversation, to what degree are gender dynamics being considered both in the analysis of the war and exposing atrocities, especially considering the high level of civilian casualties and the, the history of prominent human trafficking and sex trafficking in the region? Who's chronicling this? It's a great question, um, and, and it is being chronicled. I mean, we see it, your reporters, uh, all the reporters um, have recognized um, the, the incredible burden on women and children, in particular in Ukraine. We see them leaving. We see them giving up their homes, um, traveling to another country. Um, hope, they, they hope they can come back. Um, uh, is why they're not all coming, to, not, not big flows to the United States because they want to stay in the area because they want to go home. But it really is a burden on women, uh, children. Um, you mentioned the sex trafficking. There's, there's worry about that. It had gotten a whole lot of attention in Eastern Europe, but there, but some, there have been a couple of indications. Uh, and again, I, I go back to the importance, and this is part of what we're talking about here today, of journalists, um, of uh, of uh, reporters um, who are who are documenting this uh, as well, some more than others, but nonetheless, that story is getting out. I'm just always struck with uh, Timothy Snyder um, and his dedication to the book, The Road to Unfreedom, and he says, for the journalists, the heroes of our time, because they are the ones actually doing the most to identify the truth in some real sense, but also the truth about, about gender. I want to follow up on child trafficking, right? Ukraine has this say, robust industry of adoption. And, you know, we've done some stories about what's happened to some of these places as they're, you know, they, they can't sort of travel. But to me, that is a concern if you've got to be worried about child trafficking. Absolutely. Um, uh, and you're right. Uh, uh, in Ukraine, um, the orphanages, um, some have tried to stay, some have moved totally, just moved uh, into the Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe. Um, uh, so the, the child trafficking has to be a, a big concern. And before the adoptions, there were a lot of Americans and other nationalities who adopted you know, Ukrainian kids. Right. Um, and, and this war has actually uh, stopped that, has really put a halt to that, really big problems for both the Ukrainians and Americans. But that's, a, that's, that's an issue that we ought to be focused on. It's a, it's a great question. Some more online. So I have another online question. Credible reports of torture are emerging out of Kherson. How have these sorts of atrocious acts, including against non-combatants, been known to have been committed previously by Russian forces elsewhere? And that includes globally. 
Chechnya, Georgia, and Syria, right? In all three, isn't there evidence in all three countries that the Russian soldiers have gone above and beyond? Up, above treaties? and beyond. And, it just, and Kherson is the latest one. But we, we saw that so vividly in Bucha, um, the, the torture um, uh, that was evident. Um, uh, and yes, in Kherson, um, which the Russians now occupy but don't control, um, there are stories coming out again. The heroes of our time, the journalists, um, are, are showing this. Ukrainians and internationals are showing the, the torture that's, that's going on there. And as you just said, Chuck, um, this, is not, this, this is what the Russians seem to do. I guess the, it, it, is this the penalty for not holding them accountable in Chechnya, not holding them more accountable in Georgia? I mean, is this, is this in some, I'm not saying that the wet, but this is a, a fallout of not, not pursuing justice back then. This is a further demand, uh, requirement, um, imperative, um, that we hold them accountable. Uh, because otherwise, it keeps happening. What else? And a final question directed to you, Bill. In your opinion, what does winning look like for Ukraine? This is a great question. Um, um, Winning, uh, I go back to President Biden, he needed to say this, and he did. Uh, winning is the emergence, the defense of, and the continued existence of a democratic, independent, sovereign, prosperous Ukraine. Those are all important pieces of it. The, the prosperous part, that suggests that, that the rest, the free Ukraine needs to have access to the Black Sea. So it needs to have Odessa. So that's the, pro when he said prosperous, that's what I read, when he, that you, free Ukraine uh, needs. He didn't say that it ha has to be immediately the full territory of Ukraine as it was before 2014, uh, when the Russians first invaded. He did not say that, nor has President Zelensky said that. Um, President Zelensky said that's, that's a claim he's going to maintain forever. Doesn't have to happen right away. Um, but, but the answer to the question of what the goal is, there needs to be a, a sovereign, independent Ukraine uh, that can continue to develop, continue to develop economically. So free Ukraine, even if there is some portion, whether it's just Donbass or Crimea, um, that is still occupied, um, free Ukraine can join the European Union. Free Ukraine could apply to NATO again. Free Ukraine could develop, North, think North Korea, South Korea. South Korea developed pretty well its economy even though it was divided. Think of West Germany, East Germany. Um, West Germany evolved, helped found the European Union. West Germany was in NATO um, even while the Soviet Union controlled East Germany. So, so a free Ukraine, um, uh, sovereign, that is not under the control of the Russians, democratic, um, uh, uh, can, can continue to develop while not giving up an eventual claim on its, its full territory. Let's, um, let me pivot, we have a few minutes, so let me pivot to the future of Russia. Um, you know, is, this, is it worth planning on a post-Putin future in the near term or not? Sure. Um, we, let's be clear. Um, 
that's for Russians to decide uh, when Putin leaves. Um, uh, I hope it's for Russians to decide. Has it been the Russian people's decision or not? Well, well I didn't we say, can, well, yeah. yeah, the <laughs> Russian people or people around Putin. Mm -hmm. um, I was on a, on a panel a couple of weeks ago um, with a very senior um, ex-intelligence um, service head, um, and he said, you know, it's, his scenario um, is that bad decisions by President Putin, a blunder moving, going into Ukraine, mm -hmm. a strategic blunder that is hurting the country, it's hurting the, it's hurting the economy, it's hurting the military, it's hurting the services, security services, bad decisions there, bad health, um, unpopular, uh, popular unrest, let's say, um, in the rest of the country. Some people right around him, so these are Russians, mm -hmm. come in and say, you know, boss, <clears throat> we got this dacha for you. Um, your family's fine. You're fine. Um, um, there's no Brutus. Have right? a, there's no Brutus. Have a nice life. Um, um, you can, you know, this has happened before. Mm -hmm. um, this, this could happen. This is not for us to do. This is not for us to say. This is not, we, we have no, Russians, whether it's that little clique around mm -hmm. or more broadly, we'll make that, we'll make that decision. But, you, but your, your question's a good one. Should we be planning? Sure, we should, we should be planning for a lot of contingencies. How does, you know, we talk about what's winning look like for Ukraine. How does the European, how does Europe sort of get its economy functioning again? because it's so reliant on Russian energy. I mean, how does this look, or are we in this sort of, you know, I mean, is this gonna be, a, the rest of this decade is gonna be about essentially getting Europe to wean itself off of Russian energy? Amazingly enough, they seem to be going in that direction. Um, just in the last couple of days, they've talked about uh, cutting off all of the seaborne oil going into, uh, which they say is somewhere between two-thirds and 90%. Uh, that sounds high, but, uh, but that's, that's the commitment. They've got the Hungarians to buy onto that because they can keep getting the oil through the pipeline on the oil. They've also committed to reduce by two-thirds the natural gas from Russia. That's the European Union. Yeah, and when Europe's economy is just sort of flatlined for the rest flatline. of this dec line, decade, I mean, aren't we just going to see major un it's going to be a major. It's going to be a major transformation. There's no doubt about it. Major transformation of uh, of their economies, which they're ready to do. It's going to affect us as well. I mean, you know, prices will go up for oil and gas when they try to move, uh, cut off that supply. That, that will affect us. There's no no doubt about that. But this is a major turning point. Is there point. any fear here? We're doing we're treating Russia like Germany, World War One. I. I sense it from Macron and Schultz. That that, I mean, Schultz has all but said it, it seems. But um, do you have any of that concern? I don't have that concern. My, my first concern is to be able to, to succeed on having a, a successful Ukraine, to have a Ukraine that's sovereign um, and democratic. Um, and that's going to take both the pieces of this, both the military support, which needs to come very fast and very heavy um, uh, right now, but it's also going to take the pressure on the Russian economy. Mm -hmm. The Russian economy is, um, is able to sustain this war effort, 
primarily because of what you ask about in terms of oil and gas. I mean, that's a billion dollars a day that's going into Russia. A billion dollars a day from the Europeans. Still, still going. Still going. Right. Still going. Um, and and if they succeed in cutting by two thirds and cutting by ninety percent, um, that will go down. To History some will write that Europe is both fighting and funding. The, the same, the same enemy. And, and hopefully they will continue to fight um, and hopefully they will stop funding or, or phase out the funding. And that seems to be the direction. How is any ending to this war not put Ukraine in the EU at, at a minimum, let alone NATO? I think it has to. I think you're absolutely right. I think that, the, uh, that, that there have been commitments um, from a lot of the EU, including the EU leadership, not from the French. Uh, but, but from the, that, that Ukraine's application for uh, EU membership will be fast-tracked. Um, and they've already begun that, the, begun that process. Uh, on NATO, um, uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, it's an interesting question. How does Europe avoid going into a war again? Um, after this war settles down somehow, whether the Ukrainians win which is still possible, um, or, or, they, or they have the free Ukraine that we talked about here that develops while they still have claimed anything that they don't control. Um, how do we be sure, how do the Ukrainians be sure, how do the Europeans ensure that Ukraine's not invaded again, or that Georgia's not invaded again, or that Moldova is not invaded again? What's the security structure in Europe? Uh, and there may have to be guarantees. One, the best guarantee, of course, is what you asked about, Chuck, and that's NATO membership. Um, it's pretty obvious. It's, he doesn't want this fight with Russians NATO, don't or he'd have gone into Lithuania a long time ago, right? A long time ago, which is why Sweden and Finland joining is yeah. such a big deal for the Baltics, uh, for Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, who are kind of stuck out there. If Finland and Sweden no, are members... Suddenly you're like, oh, I've got a rear flank finally. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Uh, th th it's possible to defend the Baltics if Sweden and Finland are, uh, are members. Well, I always learn a lot uh, anytime I talk with you, Bill. So uh, I hope everybody else did the same as well. So I appreciate it. Chuck, thank, and you. thank you for being here. Thank you for asking me, Lauren. I appreciate yeah, it. Come back. I would love to. Good. Love to make my office here. Actually. Ah, right. we, can, we can arrange that. Yeah. We can arrange that. Well, anyway. good to see you. Good. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.